It seems to me that in the church, most churches, there is a great deal of confusion about the second coming of Christ. A lot of preachers would rather not deal with that subject at all. And yet, I believe God is telling us we must deal with it, and we must make that a part of the gospel that we preach, consistently a part of the gospel that we preach. So let's plunge into that now and see that there are really two things that have been on God's heart all along, of which most of us in the church have only admitted to one of the two. The one we've admitted to is that Jesus is the Savior, the Savior of the whole world. The one that we haven't quite grasped a hold of is that Jesus is the Christ. I think if you were to ask most Americans what that word means, they would think one of two things. Either it's just an expression that you use when you really want to make a point and make it strongly, or it's just the last name of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Uh, is it because we haven't really preached and taught the meaning of the word Christ. So let's go back and look at what the word actually means, since this is such an important part. But let me tell you, first off, it, it means something completely different from Savior. Savior is one thing. Christ is another thing. So the word Christ is simply the Greek for Messiah, which means anointed one. Well, what does that mean? We, we don't even use these expressions today, so we have to explain them. And so here we are, uh, a picture, an artist's rendition of an anointing. This is the anointing of David. Remember the story where Samuel came. He had received instructions to anoint a person to be the next king of Israel from among the sons of Jesse in Bethlehem. Well, uh, all the sons were paraded before him, and none of them were the one that God wanted. And so Samuel said, surely there must be another son somewhere. And they, then they brought David from out back, where he'd been watching the sheep. Yes, this is the one. So you see how Samuel, the prophet, used a horn of a ram. A ram's horn was then used, it filled with oil, and then that oil was poured on David's head, and that was the way they anointed. I, personally, I think that that's where the expression horn comes from, referring to a king's power. I believe it comes from using the horn to pour the oil, which is the way a king was anointed as God's choice. Okay, so when we talk about Jesus being the Christ, what we mean is God's, he's God's choice to be king. Now, that doesn't have any meaning until we realize that after Samuel and David were long dead, God raised up more prophets. And those prophets, whole generations of prophets, began to interpret what this means from the heart of God, from the point of view of God. So 
the, the prophets then said, all right, there's coming a king in the line of David. So he's going to be called the son of David. And this king is going to rule from the throne of David, but he's not going to rule only Israel, but his kingdom will extend throughout all the nations and the whole earth. Well, suddenly we're talking about what sounds like one world government. You know, most of us have not bargained for that. Most of us have not really thought about that being something that Jesus is going to do for us. So uh, that, that is that hasn't been a part of our gospel, and we wonder about it. You know, when we read about that in the in the Old Testament, and so we have to go to the heart of God now, and we have to try to understand. What is God after? What is God looking for? What are the longings of God's heart? And this longing of God's heart is to restore creation to its original purpose. And in order to, to restore creation to its original purpose, he is promising to do that through a king in the lineage of David. So he's not just thinking of one world government the way we think of uh, as an empire, uh, a worldly empire. But he is definitely promised as one who is going to restore creation and all the nations to God's original intention. In other, in other words, how is the earth supposed to operate? How is creation supposed to work? So the fallenness of creation is going to bring a, a need for redemption. The redemption is going to pull forth from heaven a king, and that king will be coming to do that, to, to bring the fullness and the, the, the restoration of all things. Okay, and for that, this Jesus would become the second Adam, so he's going to He's going to restore the fallenness that was produced by the first Adam, but he's also going to be the coming king, the son of David. And, and it's through that that he's going to actually restore all things. So his kingship is what we're talking about here um, in, in his method. His method is to be the king of the whole earth. Well, this whole, this whole idea of Jesus restoring creation sort of fell off the back of the wagon about 4th or 5th century. The church just stopped emphasizing that. Um, I believe probably it was because of, uh, this is something on God's heart, but it may not necessarily be something on our hearts. God wants to restore uh, his creation, but... The, the promise of eternal life and being in heaven with the Father forever somehow seems to have resonated with human nature. And so we, 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 we go after that, and we've kept that part of the message. But the other one, the, the, the other longing on the heart of God, which is to restore creation, seems to have just got lost somewhere. And so we don't preach that. We don't, we don't see that even. We don't look at that part of the word and resonate with that part. 
and so that's what I believe God, God is telling us. You need to go back to the third and fourth century when this was forgotten, and you need to pick it up and put it back on the wagon and, and keep going with the full gospel. Okay, so we've got the salvation to eternal life, but we've also got the kingdom of Jesus. Uh, and it's the kingdom that's bringing him back, you see, at the end of the age. Um, if it was just all about us getting to heaven, he wouldn't need to come back for that. We, we have to see that this whole other part is, is, a, is in the heart of God. Whether it's in our, our heart or not, it's in the heart of God. And it's God who's engineering these things. And so we have a choice whether to listen to what is in the heart of God or not. And we're just interested in ourselves and our loved ones going to heaven. All right, so let's, let's look at a couple of passages where, where we read about the part that's been lost, the restoration of creation. Okay, the first would be Romans 8. Romans 8 surely is one of the most central passages in the New Testament. And here's what Paul says. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So what we see here is two things. First of all, God has a heart for his creation. It's not just about us getting to heaven. He wants to restore and redeem a fallen creation. Secondly, there are certain ones, certain people, who are the children of God, the sons of God, the inheritors of a kingdom in a special way. And those people will be revealed at the end of the age, and they will help Jesus to actually rule on earth. And so this is a, a piece of it that gets short shrift in the preaching in most churches. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, where we, we read a kind of a, a, a nutshell uh, timeline here. Okay, uh, 1, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until... He has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, as we look at this passage, we see Jesus is coming back. And when he does, the resurrection body that was manifested in Jesus the, during the first coming will now be manifested again, but now all who belong to him will also receive resurrection bodies. Paul has a great deal more to say about that, what a resurrection body looks like and what it is. Uh, I'm not sure that any of us understand this, but uh, as Jesus was raised from the dead by himself the first time, there's going to be 
a lot of people raised from the dead and receive somehow or other resurrection bodies which will enable them to walk on the earth with Jesus and help him do the rulership. And during this time, beginning with his coming back, he is going to destroy all dominion, authority, and power. And then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In other words, this period of time, which I believe is a thousand years, uh, the last enemy is going to be death. So it's going to be a time when there will be enemies to be dealt with, and death will still happen. And we'll have more to say about that as we look at the prophet Isaiah. But uh, it, it's, a, it's a thousand year reign that was prophesied and that is being referred to when, when we call Jesus the Christ. All right, so then let's move on and realize that um, God is dealing with the problem that was set up at the beginning of creation. In other words, Genesis 3. Genesis 2 and 3 describe the, the problem of creation as God sees it. He's, he's looking at what's happened to his original intentions, and then he is saying, this is what has to happen now if I'm going to redeem everything and make everything okay again. Okay, he looks at all the pain of the earth, he looks at all that's gone wrong, the brokenness, and so on, and he says, all right, I'm going to redeem it all. If that's going to happen, there needs to be two things that, that occur. One is, I've got to deal with sin, the sin of people. So for that purpose, he sent Jesus the first time, and there's the cross, and there is the atoning sacrifice, there is the death that opens up the door, that takes care of our sin, all of that happened in the first coming of Christ, so God has dealt with sin. But what about the other part? The other part is Satan has come in with deception and deceives the nations. Okay, so God has to deal with that, and for that purpose, he's going to send Jesus a second time, and Jesus' job is to confront a whole world system that has grown up on this earth where Satan breathes lies into our heads, into our ears, and we create uh, unrighteous systems, and those have grown up on the earth, have produced all this brokenness, all these wars and famines, and, and we've, we've, we've lost our sense of living at home in creation. Uh, it's like uh, everything has fallen apart. Okay, and so God, he needs to address the problem of satanic deception as well as our sin. And it is primarily for that, as Jesus comes back, to confront the deception and the system, the world system, that has grown up out of that. And so here we read in Revelation 20, uh, verses 1 to 3, about that part of it. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. 
After that, he must be set free for a short time. So here we are. We're, we're seeing Jesus coming and bringing his kingdom. And the first thing he does is he, he throws Satan out and binds him and causes him to be put completely out of the picture. I'm kind of looking forward to that. You know, I, I, I get excited when I think of a world where there's Jesus and no Satan. Okay? And uh, let's look now at Isaiah 24, and we'll see how often the book of Revelation holds a dialogue with Old Testament prophets. And so uh, John in Revelation is really reflecting an earlier prophecy, and that's in Isaiah 24, starting at verse 21. In that day the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and punished after many days. Okay, that's the thousand years. They're punished after many days. They're going to be led out like, like to the guillotine. Okay, uh, the moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, the, the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and before its elders gloriously. Okay, here's the kingdom. Here's the kingdom, you see. Uh, the enemy thrown out, the enemy bound up, and all who serve him, all who've decided that's, that's where they're throwing in their lot. And, and, and all of them are put out of the picture, and then we've got Jesus, and we've got his people ruling on Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. The purpose of this is to bring peace throughout the earth and, and to show nations how to relate to each other, how racial groups how to relate to each other, people how to relate to the earth in the way that God created it, and so on. All of that is what God has in mind. The, 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 the point here is, and this is something that we really have a hard time, I think, admitting to, is that we live right now in a system that is in fundamental rebellion against God. And, and, and so the second coming of Christ is talking about Jesus coming back to confront that system. That's the picture that we're, we're going to get as we look at the book of Revelation a little bit later and as we just look at all of the end time uh, promises. They don't really... They don't really make sense until you understand where God is coming from, where the, where the earth and his creation have, have, have gone into deep rebellion against everything that he had in mind for this creation. And he's, he's got to confront that rebellion, and then he's got to establish a new source of wisdom, and a new source of power. He's got to bind the powers of darkness and become the source of light for, for the whole earth. And that is what we call the gospel of the kingdom. And that's what we need to recover as we look at the promises of the end times.